0: What kind of a show
1: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar.
1: What's your stance? What's my stance on 9 11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys.
0: Huh? That's Kumail Nanjiani in an incredibly awkward conversation with Ray Romano in The Big Sick, which was a big hit at Sundance this past January. The Judd Apatow-produced indie romantic comedy is out now in limited release. The cast also includes Zoe Kazan and Holly Hunter. On today's show, my slightly less awkward conversation with Nanjiani, who, in addition to starring, also co-wrote the film with his wife, Emily V. Gordon. The Big Sick tells the story of their unusual courtship, which not only featured family tensions due to cultural differences, But more significantly perhaps a life-threatening illness that struck Gordon while the two were still just dating. Nanjiani will be a familiar face to fans of HBO's Silicon Valley or Portlandia or appearances on dozens of other sitcoms and sketch shows, but the big sick, which, let me say, is really, really good, should make him a familiar face to many more. I spoke to Kumail by phone recently where he talked about the art of co-writing a screenplay with your spouse. Spoiler, it helps to have Judd Apatow mentor you, and on very short notice, he comes up with his top five most influential movies. Kamail and I also happen to share a common history, something we'll get into after hearing a bit of the trailer for The Big Sick.
1: This was fun. Wait, we haven't even had sex again yet. I'm just not
0: that kind of girl. I only have sex once on the first date. I'm just (laughs) gonna call an Uber.
1: (laughs) Your driver will be ready as soon as he puts on his pants.
0: Watch and learn, bye. (laughs) Oh, close.
1: I have to tell you something, bye. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? Shh, you can't look like you and yell white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing it's a young, single Pakistani woman. This is Zubeda. For your files? Your ex files? That's your favorite show, huh?
0: The truth is out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kumail, we'll get the important stuff out of the way. The question, maybe. I don't know, seven people are dying to know the answer to, North Campus or South Campus? South Campus. Of course. The entire time. The entire time. Did you get placed North then? What, what, what dorm did you get placed in first year?
1: I got placed in Reed. So I was Reed, Reed, Haynes, Loose.
0: Okay. Yeah, where were you? I was James. I was placed in James III. Then I was Maine. Then I was James, and then the only time I ventured to North Campus was senior year. One of my friends from freshman year, who was on my my floor, got a group draw, an awesome group draw, where we had, like, our own suite on Cole's second. So we actually had a door that took us out onto the loggia. We could just hang out on the roof whenever we wanted, and they closed that up the year after we left. But, yeah, we had a pretty sweet setup. So I consider myself South Campus.
1: Yeah, I was actually just there. I gave the commencement speech there, and we actually... Went in to all the the dorms I stayed in, uh, uh, and it, you know what's interesting that you never think about is, and is the smell of it. Oh yeah, that's what really took me back. And I when I lived there, I wasn't like oh this place has a specific smell but as soon as I walked in I was like oh goodness I'm feeling so many things.
0: <laughs> yeah and for people listening wondering what the hell we're talking about briefly I'll just say that we both went to the same very small school Grinnell College 12 to 1400 students maybe and it really is divided by a street now since uh, since we went there they added an east campus that is, is pretty remarkable but back in the day there was a road that divided the north side from the south side and there were actual differences in the types of student that usually picked which side of campus they lived on
1: yeah i mean the very general if we're gonna stereotype we're gonna say that the hippies were south campus yeah and the jocks
0: were north campus yes what qualifies as a jock at grinnell <laughs> a very academic centered <laughs> school that was that's the divide
1: yeah yeah what qualifies as a jock at grinnell is nobody else would call them jocks
0: like, no, probably i remember
1: not. being like oh, my God, these are the football players. And then you talk to them, and they're like, oh, they're just like me. They're just larger.
0: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> a little more athletically inclined. So, I, you know, is yeah. it true I saw that you were a double major, computer science and philosophy? I mean, I was just a lowly English major who was one one class away from a religious studies double major. But it sounds like you worked pretty hard.
1: Yeah, I did. I, I, well, the thing was, I gave Pakistan an our academic system there was so much harder than uh, college was. So I was used to, like, working super hard, and then I got to college and sort of continued it. I didn't realize it until, like, my last year that I could relax and kind of have fun.
0: Yeah. So that's a perfect transition to my next question. Grinnell College, Grinnell, Iowa, not exactly a comedy hotbed, nor are there many opportunities to act unless you're heavily involved in the theater program. So what did you come to school wanting to be or expecting to become? And what did you want to be when you left?
1: I hadn't really thought about what I wanted to be when I got there. I knew I went to a liberal arts school because I was like, um, maybe I can figure out what I want to be once I'm there, sample a bunch of stuff. I think at one point I was like, I'll be a psychologist or I'll be a psychiatrist or something like that. I hadn't really put any thought into it. I certainly hadn't thought about acting or comedy at all. Um, and I didn't start thinking about comedy. I think like my probably my sophomore year, I started watching a lot of stand up comedy and got like really obsessed with it. I watched Conan multiple times a week, Conan and Andy. And then I would um, go to my uncle's house in Florida and I'd bring my VCR and I'd record just like HBO comedy all day and I'd just watch like hour long specials and half hour specials. So by senior year, actually, towards the end of junior year, I was like, I'm too obsessed with this thing to not at least give it a shot. Like, I just truly was, I, I loved it so much. Um, And so then uh, I did stand up for the first time my senior year at this coffee shop on campus called Bob's.
0: You did? Really?
1: When you were
0: there? Really? Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, I played a bunch of open mics there. I used to play in bands at Bob's and I mean, I lived in Maine, so I just go downstairs to Bob's all the time to do homework. So I wasn't sure you got there just a, a year after me, I actually think is when I graduated 97. I think you arrived 98.
1: I arrived in 97. Yeah.
0: Oh, in 97. Okay. So yeah. So yeah, sorry. That would have been 97, 98 would have been your first year and I was gone at that point. Yeah, it was right after you. We never did overlap, but Bob's was definitely a a common spot for me. So that's where you actually did stand up for the first time.
1: That's right. The first time and the second time. There was this uh, little comedy show that my friend put together and there were three of us and we all sort of did stand up.
0: No kidding. How did it go?
1: To this day, the best set I've ever had. <laughs> I've never topped that.
0: So that gave you I the the, the drug. That's what hooked you.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember walking off set because i would seen so much stand-up. I, I remember walking off stage and being like, I could do Letterman this week. Pretty sure I'm better than those guys. <laughs>
0: I love it. But it is funny. That's one of the great things. It is the great thing. But also, depending on your perspective, the dangerous thing about a liberal arts school is that you can get sort of sidetracked like that. Like I went there thinking I was going to become an English professor. And it was actually there that despite there being no real film program. That I got really into movies and left there, wanting to either make movies or write about movies or talk about them. So we had we had a similar trajectory, probably in that sense.
1: Yeah, and it sort of makes sense, right? You're leaving your family. You're sort of leaving uh, where you grew up. I assume you did not grow up in Grinnell, Iowa. So you're I actually you like did, Kumail. Your, really? Yeah, I was born there. Oh my god.
0: Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I had to throw that in. I was born there.
1: It's <laughs> so few Wow. So, you know, like, do you know, like the Tarnetsky?
0: Of course. She was my, Mrs. Tarnetsky was my second grade teacher.
1: (laughs) Wow. This is, wow. So you, you really didn't go far, huh? No,
0: I didn't. I didn't. I actually tried, believe me, when I, when I got to the point of looking for colleges, Grinnell was never on my list because I couldn't imagine going to school in the same town I grew up in. And then I finally realized, wait a second, this is a really good school. What am I thinking? And of course, it was the best decision I ever made.
1: Do you know the Grabinskis? I don't know them. Oh, okay, because I have a friend here who's a screenwriter uh, who also grew up in Grinnell. Okay. I didn't go to Grinnell. His brother went to Grinnell.
0: Hmm. Maybe just a little bit after my time. This is the best conversation ever. I think we should just talk about Grinnell for 30 more minutes and see if people yeah. care at all. <laughs> yeah, Grinnell spotting. <laughs> That's it. We'll change the name of the show. Well, let's get to the movie, The Big Sick. You co-wrote it with your wife, Emily Gordon. What was the origin of that. Certainly, you had an unusual and eventful courtship, as anyone who sees the movie will attest, but what made you think it should become a movie?
1: I think it was once a few years had passed, once the danger was over, I don't remember when I first it, but once we were sort of out of the woods on that whole thing, um, once we got our bearings, it might have been a year or two after, I was like, that was a very specific thing that happened. And I think I knew it had the capacity to be an interesting story and certainly an interesting story that covered everything that was important to me and Emily thematically. You know, if we could do the story, right, it would sort of encompass every thing that Emily and I think about and all the concerns we have and sort of the, the big questions we ask ourselves as we navigate through our lives. So, so I knew it was a very specific story that nobody else had and, and I also knew that if we don't tell this story, the story is just not going to get told. Like nobody, nobody else clearly has had this experience. Mm-hmm. So I knew a couple of years later where I was like, I think, I think this could be something, but, but I didn't, we didn't start working on it for a few more years.
0: Okay. So how do you write a screenplay together? I'm always interested in hearing this whenever a movie has been made by a screenwriting tandem. Obviously, only one person at a time can write words on a page. So what is that collaboration actually like?
1: Yeah, it wasn't that she had the left hand and I had the right hand, and we <laughs> sat at a MacBook pecking. Um, so we would sort of work on the outline together, obviously, with uh, cue cards and, and stuff. Well, not cue cards, little index cards. We were, So that would be in the room, and then we would type that up uh, as sort of a beat sheet. And a beat sheet is you sort of go through every single scene of the movie. And for us, we would write, like, what changes in the scene, um, how the characters change, how the relationships change. So we kind of did that together. And then once that gets approved, we would sort of look at the scenes and pick out like, I want to write this scene first. I want to write this scene first. So we divvied up all the scenes, and then we would write separately, send each other the first drafts. We would rewrite each other's stuff, send it back to each other, rewrite it again, uh, and then send it back again. So by the time that you know Judd Apatow, who produced it, or Michael Showalter, who directed it, by the time they saw any pages. It was already the fourth draft. Okay. It was a pretty efficient and, and quick process.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, there's some cinematic embellishment. It's not meant to be a reenactment of exactly what the two of you went through. It's a movie. And I'm not really interested in what did or didn't happen precisely as it's portrayed on screen. But I am curious how you and Emily made that call in the writing process. As much as you were aware you were crafting a story, was the impulse, at least initially, to try to stick to the truth? And were there some elements of your story that you agreed were completely up for alteration and others that were untouchable?
1: Yes, the first draft was almost exactly true, okay. uh, or at least true as as we saw it, as best we could remember, and it was very long. That's sort of Judd's process is, you know, Judd sort of was the one, right from the beginning, I hadn't written a word until Judd said we should work on this together, and then Emily came on after that first draft. So, so Judd's process is, don't judge it. Don't worry about how good it is or bad it is. Just write the story in a script format, exactly as you remember it. Just put everything down. Nothing is unimportant. So, so that's what I did. I guess sort of the puke draft, some people call it. And I just wrote uh, everything I could remember in the order that it happened. And that was about 170 pages, which is very, 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 very long. <laughs> um,
0: and so... It's Apocalypse Now, yeah, basically.
1: Yeah, it's just a couple pages shorter <laughs> than the new Transformers movie. <laughs> right. Um, but So I sent that to Judd, and Judd read it, and sort of, at that point, was like, all right, so it seems like the main things are these things. And then from that, he said, go and sort of do a beat sheet. Uh, and, and that's when Emily and I sort of started working together and we, we tried to figure out, we looked at the things we wanted to sort of say with the movie or, or what the different storylines were. There are sort of five different storylines in the movie. So we isolated those and we kind of took out everything that didn't have to do with those five storylines. And then um, and then we wrote like a truthful version with those five storylines. And then we, we, we sort of started heightening stuff or taking stuff away uh, based on, uh, you know, we, at some point we separated it from our story to a story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we were really not precious about any detail, any character, anything. We said, we know the emotional core of this. We know how it's felt to go through this. So we know how far away we can walk from the truth and not lose, and still feel tethered to that emotional core. So it was a lot of trial and error, changing some stuff and seeing like, okay, this doesn't feel how it felt to go through that, so we shouldn't do that. Um, but, but really kind of anything was up for grabs as long as it still felt to us uh, close to the real experience. Hi. Hi, hello. Um, my name's Kamel. <laughs> yeah, we know. Yeah, we saw you before. Now that the niceties are out of the way, um, I have to tell you that when you yelled at me, it really threw me off, and uh, you really shouldn't heckle comedians. It's so rude.
0: I didn't heckle you. I just woohooed you as supportive.
1: Okay, that's a common misconception. Uh-huh. But yelling anything at a comedian is considered heckling. Heckling doesn't have to be negative. So if I, if I yelled out, like, you're amazing in bed, <laughs> that'd be a heckle?
0: It be an accurate heckle. Wow. <laughs> you mentioned the main things there, and I expected the movie to be funny, and it really was. It is. I expected it to have some emotional kick to it, considering the subject matter, and it absolutely did. I did not expect, I'll say this, to spend the last 20 minutes or so suspended in this bizarre state where I was smiling, but also on the verge of tears the entire time. So congrats for pulling that off.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> it's That's unique people say, like, I don't know whether to laugh or cry.
0: Right. Like, to do both. That's basically where I was at. The other big surprise, though, was that one of the main themes of the movie, it occurs to me anyway watching it, is being man enough to be honest with yourself and with others. There are a lot of men in the movie who let themselves get walked on or are ashamed about something or hiding something because it's too hard to just tell the truth no matter how hard it is. That seems to be a little bit of a revelation that your character comes to. At what point did that become part of What you wanted to explore with the film?
1: I think one of my struggles as someone, um, as I become, as I start feeling more grown up, one of the things that I've been trying to work on in my personal life a lot is trying to be in touch with myself and feel my emotions. Because I think for guys, the only quote-unquote manly emotion is anger. And any emotion can sort of be turned into anger. So if you feel sadness, you can turn that into anger. It seems like that's the only one uh, that you're allowed to express. And that's certainly how I was. Um, And so I knew that one of the things that we really wanted to put in the movie was my struggle with that, with with um, not pushing away my feelings, but, but actually feeling them and processing them. And, and the idea that it's, it's not just unfair to yourself when you're, when you're trying to not feel your emotions, it's also unfair to everyone around you. So the character of Kamal in the beginning of the movie, you're exactly right, that nail on the head. It's, it's, it's a guy who doesn't want to feel his emotions and pushes them away, and he uses a lot of different um, tactics to do that. So we knew that the sort of the core of Kamal's journey in this movie was going to have to be being okay with feeling his emotions, being truthful to himself and then uh being able to be truthful to to other people and the realization sort of comes from uh him understanding the collateral damage uh that you know the, the people around him he's hurting by not being honest with himself mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost.
0: And there's A big scene where your emotions and your vulnerability really come out, that meltdown stand-up scene. It's a point in the film where things are very high stakes. They're pretty bleak at that moment with regard to Emily's condition, and you have a big professional moment that coincides with that. How hard was that as an actor To shoot, because I'll tell you, I caught myself thinking while I was watching it, I wonder if he shot all of his singles with no crowd there, because that's what I would want to do. I would not have the fortitude to be that raw and vulnerable in front of that many people. And then, of course, I reminded myself, that's why you're not an actor.
1: Uh, That was the hardest scene in the movie to shoot by a long way. Um, We had not scripted that. No no. No kidding. The plan was... Yeah, I mean, we had some stuff in the script. It was mostly story stuff. So there is a little bit of a story thing that you find out in that speech right towards the end. And so that was really the only part that was scripted. And there were some other things that we thought we'd want to hit from a character standpoint that ultimately ended up not making it into the movie, actually. So all of that stuff was unscripted. The plan was always that during that meltdown, I would try and put myself into that place, uh, try and be where I was emotionally when I was going through it, and then just sort of talk from that place if I could. So that was always the plan. Um, And we did about, we did probably about 15 takes of that. I remember counting up to 14 and then being like I got to stop counting so it was probably 15 or 16. Each take was probably about 10 or 12 minutes, completely unscripted, sort of stream of consciousness. And here's the other interesting thing that we did with that. So we sort of shot all the stand-up stuff in 2 days, right? Okay. And we had we had a crowd of extras who basically were the audience And we told them, you know, like, pretend you're at a real comedy show. Like, we told them not to react in any way. Just react how you would react if you were watching a comedy show. So we sort of, it it was two and a half days. So the first two days were just sort of shooting, and people are having a great time because, you know, I'm doing stand-up. Bo Burnham's doing stand-up. Eddie Bryant's doing stand-up. Kurt Braunler's doing stand-up. And these people are all very funny. So it was kind of like being at a really long comedy show. So they're just laughing. Um, And over these two days, I kind of had gotten to know these 25 people or so, right? And gotten to know me. So we decided that when we would shoot the meltdown scene, we would not tell the audience what was going to happen. We just wanted to get their real reaction. Mm -hmm. So the crowd was there for all of those takes. (laughs) And I just came out and sort of went right into that scene. And so it was really interesting. We actually got their reaction um, as they slowly realized that this was different from what they had seen before. And, and initially, I didn't want the audience there, but I, but I figured, like, if this is a guy who's afraid of sharing his feeling, and now he's really sharing his feelings in front of everybody— it still has to feel like those people are there. Like if there was a little bit of hesitation that comes out Mm -hmm. in me from, from laying it all out there, that should be part of the movie. That should be part of the performance. So, and it should feel a little embarrassing. Like, you know, when you're on stage in front of 25 strangers and you're really going through that kind of stuff, it's a little embarrassing. It's a lot embarrassing. And so we wanted that to be part of the story as well.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the, 15 takes of it as hard as that must have been i'm i'm just envisioning like stanley kubrick directing that scene and he would have made you do it 97 times and by Biden- Take 97, maybe for him you would have nailed it, because actually the more beaten down and less self-conscious you were, the better, theoretically, you might have gotten. Was that the case as you went through the takes?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it was kind of all over the place. It was interesting. There were some takes where I was really angry, some takes where I just felt really tired, some where I felt really sad, some where I felt disconnected in a way that was... That was also maybe valuable. And so then we were able to mix all of those sticks together. If you notice, somewhere I look really, really sweaty. And we didn't try to clean that up or anything. Mm-hmm. And what I tried to do before shooting that was try and exhaust myself uh, physically. So I would kind of like, before each take, like run around and jump around as much as I could just so that by the time I got there, I felt like completely, completely physically exhausted. Mm -hmm. It felt like as someone who lived through, you know, eight days of the person that loves being in a, being in a coma, I remember the physical exhaustion being a big part of it. And we felt like in that moment is when this, this guy will be the most physically exhausted. So that was sort of the preparation I
0: did. Yeah. You obviously played yourself in the movie, but you cast Emily's role, Zoe Kazan, who's really good in the film. So who found it more surreal? You reliving all of these very happy and very sad moments with a doppelganger, or Emily watching her doppelganger relive all those moments with you?
1: It was interesting. Like, for me, the, the... you know, I prepared for this as I would prepare for any acting role, like I sort of went through and, you know, figured out the emotional arc and the different small steps that this character would take and all of that. But what was strange was going through the emotional stuff. It was strange how close it felt to actually going through, going through it for the first time. So all the hospital stuff. Uh, and all the doctor' stuff and all my parents stuff really felt like I was back there. Hmm. The stuff with Emily, I decided I was like, i don't want to try and recreate my relationship with my wife. I want to try and have uh, have a new relationship with this person, Zoe playing Emily, and have a new relationship with that person. Um, and so my scenes with Zoe didn't feel like reliving my relationship with Emily. Those were more of, um, I just was like, well, there's a, I'm just going to talk to this person and be with this person and see what a relationship with this person would be like. Um, so it was interesting because it was two kind of completely different experiences for me shooting different scenes of the movie. For Emily, the fact that we all really, really sort of got along with Zoe and we became like really close and we're still like very, very good friends, I think that really helped Emily navigate some of the potential Pitfalls of this, you know. So mm-hmm. actually, Emily and Zoe became super close over the the, the the course of rehearsing the movie, and then and then and then filming the movie as well. So that really helped. I think it was a little more awkward for me than it was
0: for Emily. Yeah, maybe. Was this collaboration between you guys then something you see as a one time thing because you felt compelled to tell this? very personal story, and of course, who better to do it than you? Or now that it's done, you just move on? Or are there more stories and more personal stories you guys definitely want to tell?
1: Oh, I would love to write something else. We we're actually writing um, the rebooting Amazing Stories, uh, which is this um, anthology show Yeah, the is of Steven Spielberg uh, was the producer of, and he's in charge, again, Steven Spielberg's doing it, and Brian Fuller who is an amazing, amazing writer. He, he did Pushing Daisies. He did Hannibal. He currently does American Gods, which I think is a great show. And he's the showrunner. So Emily and I are writing an episode of that. So Fantastic. We're, we're actually already working together in a sort of a different capacity because it's more of a genre thing. It's sort of a sci-fi-ish fantasy kind of story. Uh, but I would love to continue working with Emily. I thought we really... What really helps is that we know each other really well, but we also have very similar tastes. Like it's kind of strange. We all love the same stuff. Like we, we love the book like horror and sci-fi and video games, but you know, there's a, there's a big overlap uh, in our favorite movies and, 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 and writing the big sick was great because we knew right from the beginning, we were exactly on the same page on the kind of movie we wanted to make because a movie like this can have a lot of different, types of tones, but we kind of, we really got the kind of movie we wanted to make hmm. uh, from the beginning. So I'd love to work with her again.
0: Yeah. She's, well.
1: she's an amazing writer. I told her, I was like, I was like, you, you can write women who are funny and real and complicated and, and messy in, in Hollywood. That's like a superpower. You have like a superpower <laughs> that like people would want to use. Yeah.
0: We're going to get to the movies that influence you the most, the top five there. But first, the the rapid fire film, Spotting Five, just off the top of your head. The last movie, other than your own, you saw in the theater. Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. And I think I saw from your tweets, you're a big fan of that.
1: Yeah, I really liked it. I uh, I thought, you know, it was, I thought the way they integrated sort of, uh, Gender role issues into the movie mm-hmm. in a very organic way, so that it didn't feel messagey. It actually felt fun and funny. Was really good, and also I thought the fight scenes actually felt different from most of the uh, superhero movies I've seen recently.
0: What about a movie that you revisited recently? A
1: movie that I revisited recently. You know, I just this is not a revisit, but I saw Terms of Endearment for the first time. Okay, I had never seen
0: it. That movie's devastating.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like the first scene is a struggle to not cry. And then the whole movie is that. You're just, like, fighting to not cry.
0: Yeah. Was that purely a coincidence, or did it have something to do with the big sick and that there's, you know, connections people will probably make between those films?
1: I think it was a little bit that people would make connections. Yeah. um, And uh, we'll talk about this a little little bit later when you talk about my my favorite movies, mm-hmm. but um, I, I sort of decided during the editing of our movies where that I would try and watch as many great movies as I could, movies that I hadn't seen. Okay. Um, so, so, so so it was inspiring to do that, and, and Terms of Endearment was one of those that I was scared to watch because I knew it was a real tear-jerker, and then I finally, I watched it at like 9 a.m., and I had like, I had like a phone call interview right after that. It was a real mess.
0: Oh, I can imagine. What about an underrated movie, according to you? New or old, any underrated movie?
1: <laughs> okay, this is going to be a real tough one. Um, and the only reason I'm seeing it is because it was on TV. Again. I've defended this movie to people, even though it might be super tough to defend. This is a big one. This is a big swing. Love it. Uh, Constantine. I think Constantine uh, with Keanu Reeves. I think it's like a really great sci-fi, like, fantasy movie. Um, You know, it would have been better with a grizzled British actor instead of Keanu Reeves. uh, But I think Keanu does a good job in it. And I think it's just got, like, some really cool imagery that I haven't seen before. It's Conception of Hell. I think it's really neat. I think Constantine himself, his backstory is really cool. Um, I think Gavin Gavin Rosdale is great in it. Shia LaBeouf is great in Uh it. It's just a movie that I think uh, was unfairly maligned when it came out and and continues to be so. I think it's like a really fun and kind of smart movie. Blockbuster,
0: so maligned that I never bothered to see it, so I can't judge your choice here at all. A random movie that you love, any random movie that you love,
1: any random movie that I love. Wow, um, uh, Four Lions. I don't know why I thought of that. I love Four Lions. Oh um, yeah, that's the movie. Yeah, it's, and and one of the actors from Four Lions is actually in the Big Sick. Um, I just think it's a movie that could have been preachy, uh, and it really isn't. It could have been not funny, but it's really funny, and it really gets the tone perfectly. It's one of those rare movies that sort of 45 seconds in, you know exactly what movie it is, and uh, it's a very tough tone to pull off, but I think that movie like walks the line the entire time. It's about a very serious subject, but told in a very funny way uh but it it balances everything perfectly
0: yeah uh four lines for those who maybe aren't familiar 2010 film directed by chris morris a dark satire very good and we will post all of these picks in our show notes over at filmspotting.net if you're curious about the titles the last one here kumail your favorite book about the movies or movie making
1: my favorite book about the movies or movie making. Hmm. I here, I, I have to I, I never remember the name of this book. Hold on. Uh, it's called I think it's called On
0: Filmmaking. Yeah, I know that book too. Was,
1: yeah, On Filmmaking by Alexander McKendrick. Okay. It's 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 a really, really great book that just sort of walks you through um, it just generally walks you through storytelling. It also has stuff later in the book about, you know, stuff that I'd never thought of. I've never directed anything, but like the difference between having a, a dirty shot versus having a clean shot. And a dirty shot is when you see if there's two characters talking, and I'm explaining this, not for you, but maybe for your <laughs> listeners. Yeah, absolutely. A dirty shot is when you see a piece of the person's shoulder when the camera's on sort of the subject of that shot, whether you see the person they're talking, whether you see a piece of their shoulder or not. And I just hadn't thought about all that stuff, and it really breaks down what all those little things mean and the language of film. And I thought it was very, very valuable while I was writing our movie.
0: Okay, well, that was all sprung on you, and you absolutely nailed the Film Spotting 5. Now we get to the Film Spotting Top 5, and we wanted to know your most influential movies, you've had slightly more time to prepare. So how did you do coming up with these picks?
1: Okay, so these are the movies. I'm, I'm sort of, four of the five of these are movies that very, very directly influenced um, our movie. So uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, we sort of reference it in the movie. It's just, it's one of the movies I've seen the most. It's one of my favorite rom-coms. And when we were doing The Big stick, we, we kind of wanted it to have a little bit of structure of a rom-com and then a bunch of other stuff in it. But, but Four Writings and a Funeral is a movie that we referenced a lot while we were writing the script. Mm. Um, broadcast News. Oh, yeah.
0: Broadcast News, obviously Holly Hunter. <laughs> yeah, you and, got Holly Hunter broadcast- in your film. That must have been a trip.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was... Amazing. It was remarkable. It's Holly Hunter. She's literally the Holly Hunter of actors. Um, <laughs> but broadcast news, because from the beginning, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to try and do was a movie. You know, I feel there, there are a lot of dramedies that are like sort of funny and then sort of dramatic. They're in the middle. And what we tried to do, what we wanted to do was sort of hit highs in both those areas. So so we wanted a movie, we tried to make a movie that was as funny as an all-out comedy, but as dramatic as a very serious, dramatic film, right? And I think Broadcast News does that really, really well. It's a movie about grown-ups having grown-up problems. There are no bad guys in it. Um, Everybody's different, and the conflict comes from uh, not bad intentions, but from people with different points of view trying to do their best. Yep. Um, and the way it, it sort of tells the story is so good. I mean, you know, William Hurt's character in a lesser movie would be sort of a bad guy. He's yeah. unlikable. But the way he is in this movie, you totally understand who he is. Yes. He's like, I'm handsome. I'm not that smart. I'm doing my best. Yeah. I know there are certain things I'm good at. And that scene where he helps Albert Brooks, and it's sort of like maybe the broadest comedy scene in the movie when Albert Brooks is sweating on the air. But the tips that he gives Albert Brooks about like how to sit on the uh-huh. on your on the on the bottom of your
0: your suit jacket, yeah.
1: I thought it was very moving.
0: I know, and yet Albert Brooks continues to hate him throughout the whole, the entire film. And since I think a lot of us as audience members identify with him, that makes us. That's where that conflict comes from, for sure.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, we're all Albert Brooks.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Albert <laughs> you can't help it. But at the same time, we see some of those moments of nobility in William Hurt. Okay, I know you got a packed schedule and we got three more to get to here. So the other three movies okay. that had a big influence on you.
1: Okay, the Before Trilogy, there's is oh, yeah. cheating. I'm going to put all of them in there. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, <laughs> Before Midnight.
0: I love a those cheat.
1: Yeah, it's a great cheat. They all work as one. It's really one piece. Yeah. Because it, they're really great movies about two people getting to know each other and sort of the negotiation of how people reveal themselves to each other. So those movies are just the way they're structured. Is, is really beautiful from the first one through to the last where you just sort of see how people will like reveal themselves and then expect the other person to reveal themselves, and how you also are trying to dazzle someone as you're getting to know them, so you're clearly going to your stories that you know are interesting or funny or cool, and then how slowly that veneer falls away, and you just are two people who really are comfortable being with each other. Um, And that's sort of... we, We tried to copy some of that for our movie, or we at least try to use that as a guiding light, like these two people... It should feel like these are two people really getting to know each other and not just sort of, not just that they're falling in love because the music
0: is telling us they're falling in love. Absolutely.
1: I will say Monsters, Inc. This is a weird one. (laughs) I don't want to tell you why. Okay. I realized something about Monsters, Inc. Emily pointed it out to me like two days ago. And I was like, oh, man, there's something from Monsters, Inc., that I'll tell you once we're done with the interview. That that is clearly, clearly a big influence in the movie, and it's it's not obvious. But when when I first when Emily pointed it out, I was like, that is exactly what it's from because I love
0: monster thing so much. <laughs> well, I'm I, I like that movie too. I almost don't want you to tell me so I can think about it and try to come up with it. But no, I'm I'm fascinating. All
1: right, I am i am fascinated alright i will
0: not tell you. I won't tell you. <laughs> All
1: I right. won't tell you. Um, And then the last movie, this is just a movie that I really love, that I watched a ton of times, that's referenced in our movie as well. Uh, The Thing, it's my favorite horror movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, There's a poster of The Thing in my room in the movie. And I know that's become sort of a movie that is referenced by nerds in movies. But I just, just, you know, like um, Stranger Things, which I loved, also had a... Thing poster in it, but we made our movie before that. I was quite bummed when I saw that poster in <laughs> Stranger Things, but I just think it's like a really, really well-made horror movie that looks beautiful, too, that's just sort of about uh, people.
0: Well, you made a wonderful top five list. You made a wonderful movie. I encourage everyone to seek it out, and I really appreciate all your time and insights here. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Thanks. It's I think I screwed up with your daughter.
1: Yeah, it did. Let me give you some advice, Kamal. Love isn't easy. That's why they call it love. I don't really get that. I know. Now. I thought I could just start saying something and something small would come out.
0: My thanks to Kamel Nanjiani for the top five, the film spotting five and for that conversation about the big sick, who knows, despite our slight age difference being both South campus denizens, maybe we would have run into each other quite a bit. If we had been there together at Grinnell College, maybe we would have even become friends. It's fun to think about. I certainly encourage people to see The Big Sick, which is out now in limited release, and I believe it's going to expand wide on July 14th. If you see it, let us know what you think. Email feedback at filmspotting.net at... Filmspotting.net is where you can find all of our episodes, our top five list archive, our interview archive, and you can find the Filmspotting 5 archive. We've now had three filmmakers answer our rapid-fire Q&A, and you can find those answers at FilmSpotting.net/slash. FS5. That's filmspotting.net slash FS5. Next week, it's time for me to take a quick break. Josh will be back from his sojourn overseas in my chair, Chicago critic Angelica Bastien. They'll review Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled and share their top five Sofia Coppola scenes. If you've got one you don't want them to miss, we might just share that on the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net or send us an MP3 file to that same email. You can also send us a voicemail, 31227 640744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For film spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
0: Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.